This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of I Want to Matter. Your life is too short and too precious to waste. Written and narrated by New York Times bestseller Kathy Lee Gifford. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. Dynamic voices for a diverse church. This is Pass the Mic. Greetings and God bless. Welcome to another episode of Pass the Mic, Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church, powered by The Witness, a Black Christian Collective. I'm your host, Tyler Burns. You can follow me on Twitter at Burns23, follow at your own risk. And joining me, as always, is the president of The Witness. He is back, y'all. The man, the myth, the legend, the best-selling author, Mr. Blue Check Verified himself, Jamar Tisby. What's going on, brother? Man, y'all been putting out some fire episodes in my absence. I need to just step back and let y'all keep cooking. If you haven't listened, go back and listen to the past couple of episodes of Past the Mic. Tyler always holds it down. It almost doesn't matter who is on the mic with him. That's honestly why I get on the mic with you. You just make me sound good. <laughs> silly. Look, I appreciate it, man. And and you know, the truth is, I actually wanted to give you more time away, but some stuff went down over this weekend. So we had to get in the in the booth and record this emergency episode. We had to do it. We had to do it. So obviously you guys know by now, if you've been following Twitter, if you've been following Christian evangelical Twitter, you know it's been hot. People have been talking about a lot of different things that are going on. But something happened over the weekend. There was a tragic shooting in Virginia Beach that claimed 12 lives. And we pray for the families of everyone involved. It's just unthinkable that we're continually having to talk about mass shooting after mass shooting. And this domestic terror that we're faced with all the time as it relates to guns. But beyond all that, we saw a response to it. And we saw a response by the president. The president wanted to get prayed for on Sunday after he had done his golf thing. So the president had his golf game together. He had slipped his hair. Did he have a really bad game or a really good game? I I don't know, man. Like he had done something. He's like, I need prayer right now. Yeah, he just, I, man, I don't even know. So he had, he had put on the golf outfit, he had the cleats on, and then apparently he genuinely wanted to get prayed for. Now, I don't know if that was legitimate. I don't know if it's partisan. I don't know if it was, a, it was a photo op. I have no idea what precipitated this. You don't know? You really don't know? Look, man. Uh, <laughs> I'm just saying. I don't know. I'm just telling you what the facts are. So I'm not going to speculate. I'm just going to say, uh, I'm not going to speculate. All right. I'm just telling you. So the president decides he's going to show up at McLean Bible Church. Now, the interesting thing about this is that McLean Bible Church is a very large church in that area. And beyond that, the president was also coming after the service had ended. So the pastor, who's a very famous uh, white evangelical pastor, his name is Pastor David Platt. You guys have probably read a book by him. It's entitled Radical. Um, it was very formational for some of us who are breaking free from this idea of the American dream, like materialism, capitalism. If you were part of the young, restless, reformed camp, the Calvinistic camp, um, a few years back, probably about a decade back, then you recognize this book, you recognize his name. And he's obviously been involved with tons of missions, things and evangelism in the SBC. So we recognize his influence. Now, Pastor Platt receives last minute notice that the president is just going to come. He wants to be prayed for. And then apparently he just is going to leave afterwards. I don't know if that was talked about before or what have you. Mm -hmm. But so Pastor Platt is put in a difficult situation. And so he prays for him. So I want to give a little bit of the prayer here that he prays. He said, we stand right now on behalf of our president and we pray for your grace and your mercy and your wisdom upon him. We pray that he would look to you that he would trust in you, that he would lean on you, that he would govern and make decisions in ways that are good for justice and good for righteousness and good for equity, every good path. We pray that you would give him all the grace that he needs to govern in ways that lead to peaceful and quiet lives, godly and dignified in every way. Now, after he prays this prayer, um, which is much longer, you guys can actually go and look at the link in the description to see the full prayer. But after he prays this prayer, the president receives some applause, some hoots, some hollers. Um, and so he stops a few times to just drink it all in and, you know, hold a thumbs up and then make a fist bump and uh, or a fist pump. Um, and so I'm like, OK, this is really interesting. But what a lot of people saw was the reaction. So the reactions of a couple of people who were on the stage, the reactions of people 
who were watching and who saw it online. And there was one particular black woman, which we can mm-hmm. always count on black women to be always. honest. And Tyler Huckabee from Relevant Mag, he had memed it. And so I shared it and I said, this is the default reaction over the past few years when it comes to Trump and Christian evangelicals. And so it's just a face of shock. It's a face of horror. It's a face of surprise. It's a face of, I have no idea what to do with this right now. Mm -hmm. So I'm not saying she was offended by it. I'm not saying she was upset. I'm just saying she was all of us in that moment. (laughs) So that's why I said it's a mood. It's a lifestyle. This is just how we've been. It just summarized everything together. So I have to ask you, Jamar, before we keep going, when you saw the thumbnail, before you saw the video, before you heard the prayer, before you had any reactions to it before you saw any other reactions to it from other people, what were your initial thoughts when you saw that the president was standing next to David Platt? Just to look at the still picture, I thought initially, here we go again, this alliance between the Christian right and the Republican right. And and this you know alliance has been going back for decades with the rise of the religious right politically speaking, in the 1970s and 80s. And then, of course, we all know the notorious exit poll numbers for the 2016 presidential election that 80 or 81 percent of white evangelicals who voted pulled the lever for this current president. We know about the court evangelicals, as historian John Fia labels them, people like Paula White and Franklin Graham and Robert Jeffress and others who have just completely co-signed this man's presidency and policies no matter what he does, and there's nothing he can do wrong in their minds. And so when I see this photo, I'm like, this is par for the course, pun intended right. with the golf thing. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> I saw you were reaching for it. You know, I saw you, you know, were setting it up. There, so there. I was like, all right, here we go. Here we go. <laughs> So, but I also know this particular pastor, not personally, but I know his work and his public witness, and I don't believe in coincidences. So it was just very interesting to me that David Platt, who's the former president of the International Mission Board uh, of of the Southern Baptist Convention, he's probably the most well-known missionary and evangelist of the SBC, which is the largest Protestant denomination in the country. And he's dedicated his life to sharing the gospel with people who are not Christian. And I'm sure he's looking at this as an opportunity to share the gospel. And if you listen to the prayer, it's a pretty evangelistic prayer. Definitely. Definitely. Um, so, so, so that, that was my sort of initial reaction, but I'll let you set us up for the rest because obviously there's a lot more that goes along with it than uh, a pastor playing with the praying with the Republican president or this particular pastor praying with the president. Yeah. And so for me, when I saw the thumbnail, I just took a deep sigh and said, oh man, here we go. And it wasn't that I expected that Pastor Platt was up there giving a ringing endorsement of President Trump or anything like that. It was more so like the optics, man. The optics, context matters, framing matters. And it seemed to me to be a, a misstep. And it seemed to me to be a difficult thing because I knew it was going to be a photo op that was going to be capitalized and used for the president's benefit. So kind of in hearing the backlash, apparently Pastor Platt heard that from some of his congregants or maybe from some other people who reached out and contacted him because he basically wrote an open letter to the the congregants of McLean Bible Church that could be read by all. So to give a little bit more framing for what happened. So one particular paragraph, and again, you can read this in the, the description, we'll link it in the podcast notes. But one paragraph that I wanted to read that I thought was very important This is Dr. Platt writing. Uh, I wanted to share all of this with you in part because I know that some within our church for a variety of valid reasons are hurt that I made this decision. This weighs heavy on my heart. I love every member of this church and I only want to lead us with God's word in a way that transcends political party and position, heals the hurts of racial division and injustice, and honors every man and woman made in the image of God. So while I am thankful that we had an opportunity to obey 1 Timothy 2 in a unique way today, I don't want to purposely ever do anything that undermines the unity we have in Christ. So before we keep going, I think it's important for us to have two disclaimers. Uh, We're recording because we want this to be a practical conversation. And while very, very few of us will ever be within earshot of the president of the United States, every pastor, every ministry leader, 
And even every Christian has to navigate how they will interact with people in positions of power. So we don't believe that this is just situational, but we also believe that it requires a systemic framework as well. So that's what we're talking about today. And then number two, I put this out in the Twitter thread, and I've said this a bunch of times, but for some odd reason, the people of Twitter are not reading it charitably. And I have no idea why that is because they're they're normally so good with that. Yeah, it's but, Twitter. I mean, come on. Yeah, you know, they normally read in context and then comprehend the right things and then acknowledge it in the so other. Strange. But hey, wow. it's just, it's an aberration. I know uh, I don't have any desire. Jamar doesn't have any desire to bash Dr. Platt. It's just not our, we don't gain any points from it. We don't have an axe to grind. We recognize that he's just trying to shepherd his people well. We know he was put in a difficult position, which we'll talk about a little bit more later. We also know that he's made some comments in predominantly white evangelical circles and at conferences that have been very costly and risky. Um, so it's not an intent to bash him, but it, it's it's more so that we want to give a different perspective, uh, a different perspective and a way of approaching power that might not be our default but that might challenge and push us. Maybe there's some lessons that we can learn from this that would give us the right ways of moving forward as it relates to politicians, presidents, people in power. Okay, so what is the problem here? What's the difficulty? Why is this creating, you know, because some people have said, why is this even controversial? I mean, he prays for the president. We should all pray for the president, right? I mean, what's the problem? And I'll start by saying, the problem is we're not just dealing with a normal president. We're not just dealing with a routine run-of-the-mill president of the United States. Now, the reality is that the position of president, due to our proximity in America to oppression and corruption and materialism and all kinds of other things that are baked into our system, that really was founded on. This is what the land was founded on. It's intrinsic. It's genocide. It's slavery. It's all these things that have been allowed to happen over the course of centuries. We recognize that any president, you're going to be able to point to him or her and say, man, this person isn't a good representation of the the tenets of Christ in X, Y, and Z areas. We recognize that. But this president has a history. This president must be placed within the context in which he lives, in the context in which he has created for himself. And this president has a history of making racist, xenophobic, bigoted, misogynistic remarks. This president has a history of treating black and brown image bearers with contempt. This mm. president has a history of calling them out of their name. This president has a history of enacting policies that are cruel and inhumane and dehumanizing for image bearers of God. We are talking about a unique, abnormally what appears to be. We have some unique and abnormal questions of corruption around this president. We're not just talking about an average, normal, run-of-the-mill president of the United States who has been respectful towards us, but maybe he's made some decisions that we disagree with and that we think are serious. Now, again, we recognize you can say this about any president. And at the end of President Obama's uh, term, we talked about it. We talked about some of the difficulties with drone strikes and some of the, the ways in which certain things that he said and did or didn't do unsettled us. But we're talking about a president that has attacked Christians of color, that has attacked people of color. We're not talking about a normal president here. So that was the first thing is, what would it look like? to be in that room? And how would you feel if we're feeling like this from afar? How would it feel not just to be in the room, but to actually be on stage? There were Black Christians on stage. There were Christians of color on stage. How did they feel in that moment? That's what makes the situation unique. Context matters. Framing matters. And the history of this present matters. Yeah, the context. Okay. So that's that's from my perspective. Absolutely. I mean, I totally agree with you. And just to springboard off that, the context matters immensely. I mean, this is a president who Congress right now is deliberating whether or not to impeach him. That's the level of misconduct that we're dealing with. Uh, also, even, even aside from some of these issues, this is a president under whom the number of Christian refugees who have been able to enter the country has plummeted. Plummeted. Yes. People Thank you. Thank you for talking about that. Religious persecution for their Christian faith are not able to come 
into this nation because of the policies this president has promoted as regard to uh, refugee status and immigration and, and which kind of people he wants coming into the country. So there's all of that. And then if folks are listening and they're in, and, and you sort of have this heat in you that, well, the, the Bible tells us to pray for the president. He made a nonpartisan prayer. He wasn't endorsing the president. I, I, I would I would say that many folks, particularly white evangelicals, continue to drastically underestimate the negative impact that white evangelical support for this president is having on race relations in the American church. Uh, that's a long-winded yeah. way of yeah. saying <laughs> a lot of people of color and black folks in particular are completely repulsed by white evangelical support for this president to the point the impact of this presidency is to the extent to where it's difficult for racial and ethnic minorities even to show up in these white evangelical spaces week in, week out on a Sunday for worship. That's how hard it is. And that's the people who have decided <laughs> to keep going. But there are many folks who have made a quiet exodus, as that Campbell Robertson article in the New York Times states. And so I think it's going to be decades before white evangelicals really realize the impact, the negative impact this president and this presidency had on race relations in the church. Now, that's one part. The other part is we have to be prepared for politics in the church. And I've been saying this since the 2016 election. There's going to be a re-election coming up in 2020. Right. And if, if, <laughs> what are you making a prediction here? Yeah. You predicting hey, you know, <laughs> All I know is there's going to be another presidential I know election. You've been dipping your toe in the in the in the politics, man. What you've been dipping your toe in the, in the political waters, man. <laughs> all I'm saying know, down is footnotes. the incumbent president is is this guy. He's going to be running again. He has, you know, very little challenge right now to 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 uh, him running again for the Republican uh, Party as president. Uh, there's two dozen Democratic candidates. And so I've been saying for a long time that Christian leaders need to be preparing their congregations for another extremely divisive election. And part of that preparation is to say, what is our policy about platforming or not platforming political candidates? Now, you're a local church pastor. Tyler, yeah. I don't know if, if you all have something written down or unwritten that's understood or, or mm -hmm. it's case by case, yeah. but I do think that part of the issue in this situation is, you know, what's the clear policy? Now, of course, you know, not a, a president of the United States is not necessarily going to come into your congregation, but you can still have the broad outlines of what you do in a similar situation. What is, what's your take on that? Right. Well, I think the first thing that we have to acknowledge is if the president comes to your congregation, then that is a moment of recognition that you have a level of power and privilege. This any president, you have a level of power and privilege that most churches do not have. And so it's unique. We're stepping into uncharted territory. I am not worried that the president is going to show up at my church on Sunday. That's not going to happen. But those who are who are known, those who have larger churches are going to potentially be faced with those questions. Now, on a smaller scale, we have local officials, we have city council members, we have county commissioners, we have people who could come up and take the mic and say something. We have people who could come up and receive prayer, who could use this as a photo op. But hopefully we're recognizing that we should never be used and we should never allow ourselves to be used by people in positions of power, no matter if we agree or disagree with them, because there's a broader principle at play. Now, I do want to make this before I continue. I do want to make this, this distinction here. And this is something that I see a lot because people are saying uh, two things I'll say. People are saying, well, of course, we're supposed to pray for the president. Uh, the people who are saying you shouldn't pray for the president and you are insinuating you shouldn't pray for the president, that's unbiblical. Now, let's make something abundantly clear here. The vast majority of churches that I know of routinely and including mine, routinely and regularly pray for all elected, elected officials, including the president, on a weekly basis in their corporate prayer. Routinely. Like that's normal. That's what we do. 
This is different in the sense that now the president has the power to use this without context to further his own agenda. That's something different. Now you're talking about using the church for your own political ends. And now I have to have a comment on that because that is what's going to happen. I'm not saying I can prevent it, but at the same time, I have to say something about that or I have to speak into that, or I have to get broader context at one point or another, because that's going to live beyond me. Most people are not going to listen to the prayer. They're going to see the photo. So I have to put that in context, even as we talk about local officials, even as we talk about businessmen or whoever might step onto the stage or whoever might come into our church. But the second thing I want to point out, and this is something that's unique. This is why I believe we need to continually have dialogue with the black church. Black church pastors don't compartmentalize the pastorate from their own personal lives. Hmm. What do I mean by that? I'm, I am a pastor, but I'm also a black man as well. And I'm not just a pastor, but I'm also a mentor. I'm also an advocate. I'm also a mediator. Historically, what have we seen? That people would come to black pastors in America, particularly in the South, and they would be the the person who could connect them to the lawyer, the doctor, the real estate agent, the person who's going to to advocate on their behalf, the city council member, someone in law enforcement. Pastors have this, black pastors have this duality that we exist not just in a compartmentalized sense. So we're thinking, okay, now what's the perfect spiritual way that I can check all the boxes and cover my behind so someone doesn't say I'm unbiblical? Hmm. No, it's not just that. It's also, man, let me care for the souls and the bodies of the people in the pew. Not just the souls, not just showing them what is spiritually and theologically right. Yes, we should do that. But beyond that, what am I re-traumatizing the people in the pews based upon my actions today? Right. Uh, uh, and, and, and as we talk about interacting with power, that's something that a lot of white evangelicals, a lot of white churches, they're not thinking about that. They're like, okay, this is again, the cognitive versus the emotive, right? So the cognitive is, oh, he did all the right things. Check the boxes. And I'm not saying he did anything wrong. I'm just saying we think about it from a different perspective. We don't just think about it as what was the most theologically right thing, justifiable thing that I could do in this situation. It's more so as, man, I'm thinking about these people in the pews who are having to deal with these policies and some of them don't have health care and this president wants to take it away. Yeah, it's, Or some of them have health care because of something else. This president wants them to take it away. And, and, and it is theological. It's just a more of a sort of holistic kind of theology. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an embodied theology. Yes, exactly. It's an embodied theology. We don't disembody our theologies. I'll, I'll give you an example, right? Practical example on a much, much, much smaller scale. Uh, last year, near the end of the year, we had a conference at our church. And so there were a bunch of people there, parking, parking lots full, is packed, pretty much every seat taken. And so because of that, the pastors were sitting up on the front row, but we don't have stage seating at our church. So the pastors were sitting on the front row, but I was floating around to make sure everybody had everything they need. It was before the sermon started. So I was just making sure everyone was doing well, you know, checking in with different departments. And I walk out of the sanctuary and I see that the police are there and they're three police officers who are walking in our parking lot. And so I find the nearest usher. I said, hey, what's going on? Like the police are here. He said, yeah, they're looking at so-and-so's car. And I said, huh? Why are they looking at so-and-so's car? Now I know that the so-and-so, he sings in a choir. So I'm like, okay, this is interesting. Like, why are they looking at his car? Well, they're saying that <laughs> the usher is still to this day. It makes me laugh. The usher's like, what are they saying? He robbed somebody. Hmm. And I was like, huh? And so I immediately just like bolt out the door, right? So I bolt out the door. It's another one of our elders that's talking to him. So I have to insert myself because most most police officers and people who come to our church, they look at me, they're like, ah, oh, he's young, whatever. I'm like, I'm one of the pastors of this church. Like, so I had to, I had to multiple times say that and basically say, what's going on here? And they said, well, the guy who lives three houses down from your church. He said that there was a robbery and he had a camera, which basically placed this car at the scene of the crime. And so I said, wait, 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 wait. So have you seen the video? And he said, no, I haven't seen the video, but this guy says that it was this car. And I said, whoa, 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 whoa. 
And so they were getting ready to make their way into the, into the service, interrupt the service, whether detain, arrest, whatever it may be, cause a scene and pull this guy out. Now, I've known him for, for years, for decades. I'm not saying he didn't do anything. I'm just, I'm just telling you that I know him extremely well. And I said, we're going to pause here before you step into our service. We respect your authority, but I'm not going to allow you just to step in and interrupt a service and detain someone on hearsay. I'm his pastor. Mm. So we're going to walk through this and talk through this. And if I need to call the chief deputy, I have his number. So we'll, we'll do it that way if we need to. Okay. So he stopped, he paused, he took a step back and he said, and you know, he was clearly perturbed by it. And so, um, you know, he makes the call, he's on his walkie or what have you. And then about 10 minutes later, they're kind of still walking around. They're like observing, analyzing. About 10 minutes later, he says, well, uh, it looks like it was the wrong car. We'll see you guys oh, later. Whoops. <laughs> yeah. Now, in that moment, this is this is the mentality, though. This is the mentality. Mentality. We need to do the right thing. We just need to respect and honor. And, and it, it is to be submissive to those who are in power. It is to allow those who are in power to set the terms even on church grounds. Now, I'm not saying we're rebellious or defiant, but we need to think, Black pastors have to think about more than just the respect of power, but also the honoring and the the human dignity of the bodies that are under our care. So that's a different level. We can't just think about it as, oh, well, I need to do the theological thing, which is Romans 13 says in this. No, in this scenario, context matters. And if you pull this man out, he could lose his job. You could beat him. You could kill him. I have no idea what's about to happen. But one thing is for sure. Every time you step foot on this property, I will be there to make sure that the person you're interacting with is treated with dignity. And I think that's like a broader principle. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. And I think that, that black pastors and, and black Christians in general, we are used to having this relationship with power and knowing that might does not equal right. Now, I think a lot of people would co-sign that on paper, but it's different to have an experiential uh, aspect of of that knowledge to where you know that law enforcement, in, in the case that you were just presenting, you know that law enforcement isn't always on the side of justice. I mean, watch watch right. uh, When They See Us, this new documentary about the exonerated five. Um, and so when we know that's the case then we approach people in power with a little bit different lens, with a lens that these people not only have power, but they might use that power to do me harm. And I think, just to be honest, in this case, it appears from the details that we know, and I'm happy to be proven wrong, but from the details that we know, the president was using this as a photo op. Now, understand the timing here. This is on the day that uh, Franklin Graham declared and and co-signers declared along with him would be a day of prayer for the president. Now that in and of itself need not be problematic, but it was laced with all this nationalistic zeal that was pro-Trump, you know, basically. It wasn't, hey, let's pray for our leaders, just have wisdom and everything. It was let's pray for this God-ordained man uh who who God has sent to restore the nation to its Christian roots. That was the vibe of the prayer um day that was called by Graham and others. And it's on this day at one o'clock. I mean, church services start before that. All right. Now there's late and then there's like, (laughs) you know what I'm saying? (laughs) Now there's fashionably late. There's, man, the music is loud and I don't want to get there right on time. And then there's like this, which is the sermon over. You're not even dropping something in the in the pot oh, for the offering. You scanning right? the internet just... to see, okay, which big <laughs> churches still have service at this time. Lo and behold, it's McLean, and it's a white evangelical church. Uh, I believe I read somewhere. Don't quote me on this, but but Pence has been there or has some relationship there, so maybe it was interpreted mm, as, okay, as somewhat one. friendly. Don't quote me on that. I pretty, I'm pretty sure I read it somewhere though. But you know, it's in the vein, right? So that begs another question: Why why this church? You know, there, 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 there's probably a good chance that there were some black Baptist churches or Pentecostal churches that had started at 11 o'clock, but that was still in. Oh yeah, they still going. Oh, trust. They still one going. o'clock. They still going strong. The pastor only threw it halfway, halfway through his first through point. Fr- 
<laughs> exactly. So if it was just, oh, hey, let me go to a church service. And then this man stays for 15 minutes, 16 minutes. He misses the sermon. I don't think he sat or, or took communion. And, and here's the big issue. Here's the big issue. Trump was on stage. That right, was the right. thing. Yeah. If, yes, if he had yes. been in the audience and the pastor had recognized, hey, the president of the United States is among us. Let us all extend hands and pray or gather the elders and pray. Um, but he's not on stage or, hey, stand up, be recognized. We respect the office. It's not an endorsement of you or your policies. But, you know, this is a person in power. And the Bible tells us to pray for our uh, our, our officials, right? Our government officials. That's one thing. But that he's up on stage, I think, you know, Trump, if he's good at anything, it's PR. It is making the statement and crafting the narrative that he wants. <laughs> yes, yes. And for him to be right, pictured right. up there on this day of prayer, and it happens to be in Virginia, which the White House, I think it's spin, happy to be proven wrong, but the White House says it was a prayer for the victims of this mass shooting which is full of all kinds of contradictions because uh, this particular party is not for gun reform that might help reduce the mass shootings. But that's a whole other topic. Sure. Anyway. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's a, the, but this is, this is illustrative of the point, which is that there's context, there's framing. Yes. It's all mixed together. I mean, yeah. Like, and, and so that he's on stage, now it becomes a photo op. He doesn't pray. There, there's, there's no mention of, of the victims or their families of this mass shooting. And then it becomes, well, the only reason he makes a beeline after his golf game uh, to a church is maybe perhaps it would look bad if on this day of designated prayer, he's out golfing and never darkens the door of God's house, right? right. So, yep. I mean, yep. all of that plays into it. Now, here's the thing. Here's the thing. I I don't know what I would have done in Pastor Platt's shoes. Yeah, let's talk about that. What do we do? <laughs> yes. Like, what, yes. what you going to do? The president shows up. Now, it's it's a little different. Like, it's this is the difficult part of having this conversation is because we live in two Americas, right? And because Sunday morning is the most segregated hour. And because while we do recognize that, you know, some people were mentioning, ah, oh, it's a diverse church or what have you, it's pr predominantly majority white. Um, and as we think about that, there's a part of it that's like, this is a hypothetical I never have to think about because we've had one black president and outside of that, the president is never going to come to our to our church, and we're not going to have we're not going to receive um, the presence of an elected official who knows clear. This is this is the thing who knows clearly what we stand for and who we stand with. Like that's different, and I'm not saying that's not the case there, but it's different to say, oh. Let's go to such and such Bible church. It's different when it's, oh, this church has been on the front lines with immigrants? Oh, well, yeah, that's probably not yeah. the place you want to be. Oh, this church been marching alongside the... Ah, yeah, we can't go there. But maybe the other church, they'll... Why do you not know where we stand? Why do you feel comfortable to come into our space, interrupt it, and think... I'm pretty sure I'm going to receive at least a hearing yeah. or at least open arms. And at the very worst, I'll receive a prayer and I have to hear about justice and I'll cringe a little bit. But at the same time, he's not going to rebuke me and I'll get some cheers. We'll be able to use it for something. Why do you feel comfortable? I mean, with that? so, I mean, this is, this is part of the macro level of religion and politics to where Trump knows his religious base is white evangelicals. And so it's a pretty sure bet, no matter what church he goes to, he'll have a basically positive response. If it, it wouldn't be completely neutral, but even if it is toward the middle, it'll still lean toward the positive. And I think Platt's church would fit some of those things that you said as far as being on the front lines of some really important pressing issues. And yet the president still had confidence that he could go there, not because it was this particular pastor or this particular church per se, but because it was white evangelicals. And I think that's the part Right. That's the part. Yeah. See, this is this is the thing people can't understand. They think it's about the person. They Ooh, think it's yeah. about the pastor. They think it's about the situation. No, this is a trend. It's, this is this is a underlying systemic issue. Right. Is that I know their safety in this group of Christians. Yeah. This group of Christians will be the safest place for me to be. 
And another thing that kind of verifies that, and this gets into like, what would we do in this scenario? Last January, January 2018, there was another pastor who also had the opportunity to speak to someone in very high power. And that is Dr. Maurice Watson, who's a pastor of Metropolitan Baptist Church in Largo. And Dr. Watson received a visit as well. And this was around the time of, of Dr. King Day received a visit from Vice President Mike Pence. And so Vice President Mike Pence comes in, sits down on the front row, doesn't get a, an audience on stage. There's actually stage seating. Now, this is this is very significant. <laughs> this is very significant. Now, this is, again, is Black church yes, etiquette. Yes. There is stage seating in that church. And typically what you will do is if you are a dignitary, if you are a pastor, you are well-known, when you come in, you are able to get on the stage. You're able to sit on the stage with a pastor, his wife, the staff, visiting ministers, anybody who's making announcements, et cetera, right? That was not what they did with Vice President Pence. What they did with him is they actually had him sit on the front row. So I'm sitting in the audience. Now, that was the first (laughs) sign that I was like, okay, well, something's going on here. Now, he acknowledges we have the vice president here. We're honored to, to have you in our presence. The audience politely, respectfully claps. They don't stand. They don't hoot and holler. You can actually see that there's one lady in the choir and she just sits there and she nods, but she doesn't clap, recognizing again the fraught tension of this particular administration. And then later on, what does Dr. Watson do? In talking about Dr. King Day and talking about acknowledging the legacy and the message of MLK, what does he do? He says he calls out the particular rumor, and he said allegedly multiple times that someone in posi- in a position of high power, the president, had called immigrants from Haiti and from the nations of Africa. They were coming from S-hole countries, right? We've talked about this. We don't want to normalize this rhetoric. But what does he do? He says, I want you to know that whoever said that is wrong. <laughs> Shade. That was good. Let me let me tell you, you, you actually, and this is the thing, this is non-emotional. This was not him politicking. This was not him trying to gin up and stir up the crowd. This was not any of that. You have to actually listen to what he said. He said very simply, it is wrong. And there are too many members in my church who come from the nations of Haiti and also wow. the African nations involved for me to be silent, Whoa. that we will stand. He says this, we will stand shoulder to shoulder, um, side by side and breast to breast with you. Mm. You are, we love you. You will not, you will likely not receive an apology, mm. but I'm going to say as your pastor, that was wrong. I'm like, this is what we're wow. talking about. We're not saying that you even have to necessarily directly go at a president or go at a dignitary or go at an elected official. But what you can do is after that president leaves, say, now, now let me let me say something very clearly. Or even before the president gets there, let me say something extremely clearly that for the people in here who are who are family with those who have been separated from their children at the border whose children, whose relatives have been placed in cages and detained as though they were animals. We see you in this moment. Mm. Mm. That whoever did that is wrong. So I just want to let you know that the people who are connected with those and who are identifying with those Black women who this particular administration has targeted publicly, has publicly disrespected, and called dumb and called stupid and called less than, I just want to let you know that's wrong. We stand with you. For those who are triggered and traumatized by the fact that they just saw a documentary uh, or dramatic representation of the Central Park Five, now the Exonerated Five, and, and, and they're working through that this weekend, I just want to let you know that this particular person's presence probably brought something up in you. And while we honor and respect and pray for that particular person's office, I also want to let you know that we don't co-sign that behavior. Mm. We don't do it. Mm. 
And just in case someone was confused for the visitors who may be unaware of where we stand, we are not neutral in matters of injustice. We stand firmly on the side of the oppressed, just like God does in scripture. Now you can stand. Now we'll do the benediction. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not going to let that be the last thing you hear. Right. I'm not going to let yeah. that just go on it. No, I'm not going to wait till tomorrow to tell you mm. that. I'm not going to put it in writing. I'm going to say it to your face so you can look in my eyes and know I mean it. So there's a couple of things that was, I'm glad you brought that up because it shows us a couple of things. Number one, there was an alternative. There was a different way to do this. I think a lot of people really sort of get trapped into the narrow lens of, well, the Bible tells us to pray for our leaders. So have them on stage and pray for them publicly. Like that's not the only way to honor what the Bible says about praying for our government officials. And this pastor demonstrates it. And the pastor demonstrated speaking truth to power with love and respect. And he did it with love toward his flock, who he knew would feel some kind of way at, in this case, the vice president's presence there. And, and, addressed it prophetically in a way that was likely consistent with the way he's preached week in and week out for years, right? So there was nothing special or abnormal, really, about what he was saying. Um, it was just the presence of this particular person that was unique. Uh, did not have him on stage, et cetera, right. et cetera. And, and, and so there, there, that's one thing, that there were other ways to think of it and that people in a similar situation have, have done yes. something different. The second thing is something that you mentioned off mic, Tyler, is the limited Christian imagination of many people. Talk about this, Jamar. Please talk about this. Like, Thank you for bringing this up. That there, that there is no concept among many people, specifically white evangelicals, that you could approach this situation any differently is indicative of the silencing of racial and ethnic minorities in the American Christian tradition. Yes. Because if yes. you've been listening to black churches, if you've been listening to Latino and, and, and immigrant churches and our Asian American and Native American brothers and sisters, there's a narrative here. And even the global church, let's, let's, let's absolutely uh, think about Christians who are in real life yes. and death situations because simply they are Christians. And if you listen to them, then you know that the rhetoric of demagogues is damaging. And that in that situation, yes. you oh, would have been conditioned, good, you would have been conditioned to think about their concerns first. Let me let me put it to you this way. When it comes to politics, whether deciding policy or how to handle a, a, a guest or a visitor, think of the disinherited first. That's Howard mm. Thurman's term. And his from his book, Jesus and the Disinherited. Think of, as he phrases it, people with their backs against the wall. The people who have little earthly power, economically, politically, socially, or culturally, think about the impact on them first and let that guide hmm. your decision making. Let that be your filter. Because I think what happened, I think what happened in this situation was folks were thinking about the response of Trump supporters and they were thinking about the office, the, the, the importance of the president and 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 who he is and what he represents in a way, and I'm talking not necessarily about David Platt, but in, in terms of the response and the rhetoric, they were thinking about it in a way that could indicate favoritism. And if we're hmm, going to be thinking about that, we need to be thinking about the people who Jesus calls the least of these and how uh, these actions will impact them. That's all. Yeah, I, I love this tweet from uh, our good friend Esau Macaulay. Um, he mentioned something early this morning when he said, we need a theology of the church's witness that includes John's critique of Rome and Revelation, Isaiah's condemnation of wicked foreign powers, Daniel's witness to Babylon, Nathan's witness to David, John the Baptist's rebuke of Herod, and Jesus's words about Herod. Um and he mentioned that it wasn't necessarily this critique of Platt so much so as it was just the reality of, of what we need. We need a more expansive, holistic view of what it means to have public witness. Yeah, and it's yeah, not just yeah. found in one text. 
And I just I think about Luke three. I think about John. I think about you know John the Baptist and what situation he was placed in and what that would mean. How he was wasn't able to hold his peace. That he wasn't able to keep his mouth shut when he saw the corruption in the highest office in the land. I just I think about that. I think about the the minor and major prophets who many of whom were killed for what they said, many of whom were ostracized for what they said. And I think, do we have that same moral courage? Do we have that same moral fiber? And it's not to say we're better than anyone else. It's not to say we do everything right. It's just to say, if we're not thinking about this now, when the time comes, we won't think about it in that moment. This is why we have what we have. This is why we talk about this on a weekly basis. We talk about this because we recognize that a day is coming when we will have to make decisions, key and vital decisions on whether or not we will side with those who are the victims of injustice, who are oppressed, who are marginalized, or those who are in positions of power. It's coming for all of us. It's a reckoning. And for many of us, we may be failing the test right now, but coming to a realization and saying, what can we do? What decisions can we make? But I'll just tell you this that I've been to the border. And when you look at those people, those image bearers in their eyes, I can't shrug this stuff off. I can't just claim neutrality. I can't just say, well, see, I didn't pray a partisan political prayer. To not pray a political prayer is to to pray a political prayer. (laughs) That's political. Like that's just, it's a choice. Not to act is to act. Like we recognize all this. And so I just want to encourage people from the standpoint of it seems as though, and this is the trend, this is the systemic idea. I'm not talking about Dr. Platt. I'm talking about the systemic idea here is that we have seen proof multiple times that white evangelicals will typically do the safest thing, that when faced with a choice, a knee-jerk reaction, what should we do in this situation that will be contentious and controversial? I will choose whatever option is the safest, but the safe option is not always the just option. Mm. Don't just do the safest thing. I'm not saying do the right thing as though there's only one way to do things. I'm saying do the thing that is most just for the people who are most marginalized. Let's try that and see where we end up. Don't just say, well, look, we only got two options, so got to vote for one of them. Hey, look, it's this guy. Xenophobic, bigoted. Eh, well, you know, abortions will be down, I think, right? No, that's the safe option. That's not the just option. Choose something that is prophetic. Choose something that is morally courageous. That's what we desire. And this is, again, not to bash, but it's just to simply say that there are pastors historically in our community who have had to make that decision and it has cost them and you, we have never heard their names. We have never heard their names. They're not mentioned you know, famously. They're not the ones who are uh, pointed out and upheld, but they're the ones who are faithful. And where are the people who are going to make the faithful decision and recognize that, yes, we can pray, yes, we can respect, yes, we can honor, but we can't just give you carte blanche to think that you can step in our place, hijack the Lord's time. It ain't our time. It's God's time now. His body is gathering together. You can't just come in and be like, I'm not going to listen to your sermon. I'm not going to stay for communion. I'm not going to do any of this. But yo, pray for me real quick. Then I got to get back on the links. No, we don't do that. Where is the church's courage? (laughs) Where's our boldness? Where's our fidelity to the truth? Enough to say, we're not going to allow you to use that. There is another place next door where you can do that. Go somewhere else. Thank you for coming. But no, we can't let you do that. If you want to sit and listen to the word being preached, we'll allow you to do that. And then we'll stretch our hands towards you and pray for you. But we're not going to let you just use God's body for whatever purposes that you desire. There was an article by Ruth Graham that the last paragraph I just thought was incredibly good. Ruth Graham, don't, bro. Read this. Read this. So she says, but declining to mention politics is itself a political act. And public prayer consists of much more 
than the text of its message. And then I think she captures the inherent complexity and perhaps contradiction in this whole episode of Trump coming on stage and his pastor praying for him. She said, Platt tried impossibly to have it both ways, to be on the stage with Trump and also rise above it. So it goes back to what you were saying, that this particular president, of course, comes with all of this context and all of this baggage, and that to appear publicly with him, even in a context of prayer, can often easily be construed as endorsement, even if you make a nonpartisan prayer and attempt not to be political. And I've been saying this for a long time. I think it's misguided for Christians to try to somehow be apolitical or non-political. We are political beings. What, what does justice do, Jamar? What do you always say? Justice what? Justice takes sides. Yes. And this is an instance That's it. where you have to take sides for justice and discern what that looks like in this particular context or whatever particular situation you're in. But look, stop trying to stop trying to straddle the fence. It's not going to work. You just end up getting yeah. real hurt and hurting the people that you're shepherding. Yeah. Take the side of justice. It's going to cost you, but guess what? You'll be in good company. Well, as we close, we do want to mention that we are praying for everyone involved, uh, not just Dr. Platt, not just President Trump, but also praying for uh, the people who are members who we will never meet, who won't have articles written about them and probably won't have their perspectives heard. The members who are traumatized by this, those who are traumatized from afar, and those who are constantly under the gun, <laughs> Christians of color, and then also white brothers and sisters who are trying to navigate on behalf of the marginalized. I just want to let you know that we see you, we lament with you, we hear you, we're praying for you, we're standing with you, and we hope, we hope, we pray that justice will roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. This episode was brought to you in part by United We Pray. United We Pray is a podcast devoted to praying and thinking about racial strife, especially between Christians. Come join us in praying for the unity of God's people.